Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Robert Stoltz about his new book, Bad Water, Nature, Pollution, and Politics in Japan, 1870-1950, and this came out with Duke University Press in 2014. Now, this is a really fascinating history of the emergence of different notions of environmentalism and environmental thought, environmental practice in the context of modern Japan. So it's a book that's going to be of interest to really anybody interested in modern Japan, but also in the history of ecology and the environment, the history of cultural theory, and the history of Marxian thought, and also actor network theory, which plays a really prominent role in the book, even though we don't talk about it too much in the conversation. It's just, it's a a fascinating account of some really interesting set pieces, um, some really important events, and an exploration of the thought and the work of some really important scholars that if you don't work on Japan, but you're interested in the history and theories of the environment, you may not have heard of, but whose ideas and whose thoughts, as translated by Robert um, in the book, turn out to be really, really interesting and relevant to some contemporary and historical ideas of social environmental theory in ways that I think could potentially generate some really fascinating future future conversations. So um, I encourage going out and getting a copy of the book and reading it. Um, It's really fascinating for all these reasons, and it was really a pleasure to talk with Robert about it. Now, I am particularly grateful to him because we actually had to reschedule this because I had just a massive head cold last week and was coughing all over the place. Um, We did reschedule it, but the ramifications of that cough are that you'll still hear it um, in bits and pieces in the interview. So I apologize for that on behalf of my rhinovirus. Um, I thank Robert effusively um, here, especially for his uh, generosity and flexibility in scheduling around that. And I am just really excited to share this book with you. So thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Robert Stoltz about his new book, Bad Water, Nature, Pollution, and Politics in Japan, 1870 to 1950. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Robert, and thanks very, very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm super excited about the book. I think it's a really important contribution to several fields, and I'm really delighted that you've made the time. So welcome. Well, thank you. That's very nice, and thanks for having me and for doing this series. Of course. So, Robert, could you start us off by saying just a little bit about what brought you to the field, and maybe uh, in particular, how did you come to work on modern Japanese history? Sure. I I know everyone has a story that's supposed to be, they say it's not all that interesting. Um, In my case, I think that's also true. I came at it uh, not through the Japan field, like some people, but through history. In undergrad, I was a history major but I had no experience with Japanese history or Japan at all, uh, even the language. I came at it through uh, the French Revolution Hmm. and wrote my senior thesis there on the regicide and Robespierre. And then there's a major gap between finishing undergrad and then starting in graduate school at Chicago, which was I went to Japan, but that was largely because that was still an open... It was the end, the beginning of the lost decade. The bubble was still a little bit left... And so there were still jobs and teaching English, and it seemed like an adventure more than anything else. And I meant to go for a year, ended up staying for almost three, and actually starting to learn the language a little bit. Yet even then, when I came home um, in the mid-90s, 
I did not move into academics at that point. I actually worked in, and this is totally unrelated, but became helpful for later criticism, uh, subprime auto financing. Wow. Specifically in the bankruptcy department where you got to see how it's going to end. And of course, it ended exactly the same way that the subprime housing loans ended, just a little bit sooner and a little bit less disastrously. And from there, I moved into another finance job. And from there, uh, slowly making my way towards academia again, I worked as a product manager in Minneapolis for a translation firm and worked in the East Asian unit there, not as a translator, but as a project manager. Finally, at that point, I think I got exposed to a little bit more academic side of the, the job there. I applied to graduate school at the end of the 90s. That's fascinating. Um, that's really, is really it? fascinating. <laughs> it is. So the book that we're uh, here to talk about today explores, among many other things, and we'll get to many of these things in the course of our conversation, I'm sure, the emergence of an environmental turn in Japan in the context of environmental crisis and also uh, emergent notions of environmental crisis. And there's a whole lot more going on as well that we'll talk about um, in the course of the conversation. So what led you to focus on this particular topic? Uh, this was also the result of slight diver- uh, major diversion, in fact. I was looking around for uh, dissertation topics. I had done a paper on agrarian fundamentalism, which shows up a bit in Chapter 4. Um, and that would had obviously been a very right-wing inflection of uh, the back-to-the-land ideas that I talked about there. Um, but after that, I started working on uh, the Marxist philosopher Tosaka Jun and theories of space and time in the 1930s. And I was convinced that this probably was going to be my dissertation topic. Um, and then accidentally, more or less, I had to go to a friend's wedding in California. And as reading for the trip, I picked up uh, Mike Davis's Ecology of Fear. Hmm. And I remember already on the plane just being blown away in Chapter 1. Uh, but it showed me, maybe I should have known ahead of time, but I didn't. It just showed me what was possible as a critical I in uh, and a critical method in environmental history and in intellectual environmental history about terms and ideas and concepts and and how they reflect out into the actual environment and help shape and rebuild it as well as react to it. Um, and that was a major turn. I came back from that and said, I'm doing environmental history, not knowing anything beyond that. <laughs> and so I started casting about for something that would not reproduce the right wing version of it, but be something closer to what Davis had done in Ecology of Fear. The major incident there in modern Japanese history, and fairly well studied, is the Ashio Copper Mine pollution incident of the 1890s. And so I just started reading through that and hoped that I would be able to find something and it would present itself. And after a year or so, it, I think it did. And that is ultimately, uh, the, that's the germ that actually became, finally, the book many years later. Great. Now, this uh, started out as a dissertation, and so were there any major transformations from dissertation to book, either in how you were um, shaping the project, what the project looked like as an object, and or in how you were thinking about the work? Yeah. In, in fact, prob- all of those, uh, there were some <laughs> major changes in that the dissertation was uh, shorter. It was four chapters, and it was largely an intellectual biography of Tanaka Shozo. Mm-hmm. That is what I had been able to work on in Japan during research. 
and I had gone through some of his collected works, some of his selected works, or the Zenshu and the Senshu, um, and that was about how it stopped. Now I have chapter four on the anarchist Ishikawa Sanshiro, and then chapter five on uh, Kurosawa Torizo and the Snowbrand Dairy story. Those were a combined maybe 10 pages tacked onto the end of the last chapter of the dissertation, speculating on where this could go later on. Um, and that was a major change. And obviously, we do have some writings, and including an English biography of Tanaka Shozo with Kenneth Strong's Ox Against the Storm from 77. And so I was looking around to expand it intellectually, but also, obviously, as a broader appeal for possibly turning in from just a dissertation for a committee to a manuscript for a public. So what came out new is there's a brand new introduction. And a lot of chapter one is new research that I did on a postdoc uh, at Waseda University, uh, specifically some of the work on the uh, popular rights and liberty movement. And that made a made, I think that helped f- reframe the things that were left over from the dissertation into this broader problematic of the emergence of environmental politics, of which Tanaka is a hugely important part and one of the pivots, but not the, the entire story, and it didn't come just from him. And so those, those extra chapters, those, the expanded material, and really a, a very different reframing, beginning with that chapter one, talking about Meiji rationalism and the like, that was all new and doesn't appear in the dissertation. Okay, great. Thank you. So, um, so let's actually get right into it and get right to it. Before chapter one, there's a really interesting introduction that sets the stage and gives us some context within which to understand the chapters to come. So what I'm going to do is just super briefly summarize some of that before diving right into the first chapter. Sure. So as you mentioned in the introduction, in the 1890s, which you've just invoked um, when talking about the Ashio copper mine incident, as you, as you put it here, nature became political again. And you say that the book, in the, or you say this in the introduction, you say that the book is about a search for what might be called an environmental unconscious at the base of modern political and social thought. So the book is going to look at this process, the emergence of an environmental unconscious and what happens um, in <laughs> the late 19th and early 20th centuries this develops by following a really interesting kind of periodization. So the periodization of the book follows the notion of what you call um, following, I think, another author, echo historical p- periods and charts a history of nature society metabolism. We're going to see this idea coming up later on in the chapters, but I just want to really briefly lay this out for listeners right at the beginning because it's mm-hmm. super fascinating. So the th- kind of the three periods here start in the in um, around 1868 to the 1880s, where you chart a, a um, process by which. In this period, there's a mode of describing the relationship of humans to nature in terms of separations. So separations between body and miasmas, sewage germs, and also between the modern subject and the past. And we're going to see some of this in the first chapter. Then in the 1890s, there's an outbreak of industrial scale pollution, and we see a language of leaks 
And then after 1900, there's a language of connections and mutual penetrations. So I mention this because one of the really wonderful things about this book is that you're really sensitive to the discourse of and the language of um, relations between nature and individuals and societies and people and bodies. And the a sensitivity to that language, I think, really... Um, lets us see a completely different kind of set of practices that are emerging in these periods in a way that's really, um, I think, quite groundbreaking. And so separations, leaks, and penetrations. And so let's get right into it. A Decade of Leaks, Chapter 1. <coughs> so the first two chapters of the book explore the relationship between what you call the Meiji liberal subject and the environment. And you show us here early Meiji liberals tried to separate the two, but increasingly that separation was difficult to maintain in the context of industrial pollution. All right. So the first chapter looks at the establishment of the autonomous individual as a political unit from its invention in the 1870s through the like increasing difficulty of maintaining that separation. Okay. So Let's start out by first laying the groundwork and understanding the context that then gets shifted um, with the emergence of this industrial pollution. So Meiji liberalism. You say here, Meiji liberalism had removed the modern political subject from the space it occupied. So let's start there. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about this idea of Meiji liberalism? What do we need to know about um, the relationships therein in order to really appreciate appreciate the kind of transformation that you're going to chart later on in this chapter. Right. Uh, I think maybe the best way to go about this is this focus on liberalism, as I mentioned, wasn't completely there in the dissertation. What I had been looking for and reading Tanaka Shozo's autobiography of 1895, and the more I started reading into him and around that text, it was clear that this was a popular rights and liberty movement or a liberalist movement and not, as the standard story had had it, that it was uh, a leftover of Japan's peasant past. And that was where the critique was coming from. And so it immediately became clear, even though I wrote most of that in Chapter 2, that I needed to get a better sense of what liberalism meant at the time and specifically what was being uh, constructed and what sort of world and worldview this language um, and this ideology <laughs> was actually working to build. Um, so I just started looking into it in this case. And part of it is you, you can see early on in the in, right away in chapter one, I'll start looking at the traditional narratives of the period that Ashio coincides with, which you've already mentioned, is the 1890s. And the traditional stories had been versions of control and stability and moving forward. And that was clearly not resonating with what I was seeing in the early petitions and Tanaka's petitions and other things happening in the now polluted regions. And more, more than that, I then found, when I started looking at actual movements rather than just complaints, another disconnect in that they were explicitly liberal. And I write about this briefly, um, well, I think I call it something like the Shimotsuke Liberal League versus Blue Vitriol, which is a, an early example of the belief that you can actually fight this new environmental pollution 
with the old forms of liberalism. And ultimately, looking forward, I f this is a failure that I'm going to argue for. And so I had to start looking at the points of failure. And of course, it was going to be precisely at the interaction between the body and the environment. Now, that's how it ends. And that sent me looking for how was that actually constructed. And that is the 1870s stories and the, 18 is the, the issues of defining a new modern Japanese subject. It's amazing how much the language of things that are not explicitly environmental, like Fukuzawa Yukichi, or the piece I opened with with Obata Tokujiro, uh, are talking about how the very creation of a free modern individual requires liberation from nature and requires liberation <laughs> from any sort of external determination. Now, for many of the liberal stories, that's obviously state interference. But it's not just state interference. It's any kind of non-voluntary interaction with the individual and the outside world. And this started to coalesce around a liberal theory of the body and a liberal theory of the subject that I was able to then work out and then see it start to fall apart. And this is precisely what you've started to say, is the separations give way to leaks. And so the, the line you quoted saying that the liberal subject was divorced from the, from the its, um, excuse me, was divorced from its surrounding and divorced from the material world around it is, of course, not fully true. It was imagined as divorced that way. And a political philosophy and institutions were built as if it were divorced that way. And therefore, when those things start to break down, it's much more damaging, not just to any details, not just economically, but politically. I guess in some ways, to wrap this up to a certain extent, because I started with the end and then went back, the payoff in this case is that line where I see that industrial pollution, of course, harms the body, and lots of people saw this. And, and that was actually physically manifested in sickness and blindness and all sorts of physical ailments that could be documented. But at the exact same time, and for the same reason, industrial pollution, or pollution in this case, not only biologically contaminated the Meiji subject, but it politically contaminated the Meiji subject. That wasn't possible, um, or that was possible, because it had been imagined as divorced from and unaffected by any sort of outside interference and outside interaction. Great. Thank you so much. And um, just to mention for uh, listeners, this separation um, of the body from the environment is is really wonderfully looked at in this chapter, even at the level of clothing. And you talk about, I think uh, you put it, scientifically vetted clothing yeah. that emerged in this context. So it's this really wonderful multi-layered look at various um, uh, practices of and media of separation that involve histories of fashion, histories of clothing in this really wonderful way. So the major um, turning point or the major disaster that you look at here is um, something that you've already mentioned, this Ashio copper mine incident. For listeners who don't know anything about this, can you kind of just briefly explain what happened and what do we need to understand about what happened to understand what you're arguing here in this chapter? Yes. Uh, <laughs> the Ashio copper mine is an old mine. It had been exploited way back in the 17th century by the Tokugawa uh, shogunate. Um, and in fact, uh, the, the copper on the, on the roof of the famous uh, Nikko Shrine or Nikko Mausoleum uh, northwest of Tokyo uh, is from 
the, the Ashio copper mine. But after the Meiji Restoration of the 1868, it was quickly bought up by uh, Furukawa Ichibe, who was founder of one of, the, one of the major conglomerates at the time, the Furukawa Zaibats. And in modernizing this, and there's lots of business dealings, and he's very often uh, seen as an early success story of Meiji um, entrepreneurship because he was able to outmaneuver some established trading firms from France and from, uh, from England, Jardine Matheson in this case. He bought this mine and quickly modernized it to the point where it's now exploited at a pace and a rate that has just never been seen before. And this increase in quantity led to a flood or a, a, a deterioration of the rivers that sit that that flow down from the mountains from Ashio down towards uh, Tokyo. Um, the Ashio mine sits at the headwaters of the Watarase River, and then the Watarase later combines with another major river northwest of Tokyo called the Tone. And much of the waste of this mine, largely copper, but a host of other pollutants, arsenic, mercury, and, and several others, uh, were dumped into the river and moved its way through a very rich agricultural region. Um, rice, of course, but also lots of silkworm production from dry fields and mulberry trees, um, and also indigo production. It's a very famous indigo area as well. So when the chemicals from the mine were flowing through this region, they started to change things and start, and people started to notice that nothing was working as before. Indigo dyers were some of the earliest people who realized something was wrong because the chemical reactions in the water, they weren't getting the blues that they needed to get anymore, that they had become famous for. Mm. Worse than that, um, and where the real damage starts to hit, is that it's largely paddy, rice paddy uh, cultivation through that region. And so suspended copper that might flow through a river gets diverted in irrigation into this the, the rice paddies, and they just become heavy metal sedimentation ponds and fall into the sludge. And it really destroyed the output of that region. Um, the livelihoods and illnesses start running, start uh, increasing, and uh, they can't make a living anymore. And early on, people knew something was wrong. Fishermen, indigo dyers, mulberry uh, silkworm producers and uh, rice paddy farmers all clearly had a sense that this was a problem, and they early suspected the mine. It wasn't confirmed for many, many years, but they knew and had followed some of the tracings be to this point. So that's by the 1890s, with the increased rate of exploitation of the Ashio mine, a whole sort of knock-on effects, all negative, start happening in these Tone and Watarase Valley watersheds. Right. So the fish start disappearing from the Watarase River. And you talk about some really, um, really powerful and really interesting, not just implications of this incident, but also transformations in the way that um, the relationship between the membrane between people and the environment and people and nature was really transformed in this period. So I think as you put it here, ashiotoxins revealed hidden connections between people, places, and things. And the chapter goes on to explore the implications of that. Also at the end, and I'll just mention this for listeners, even though we won't have a, a chance to really um, talk much about it, the last part of the chapter looks at a really important journalistic investigation of the problem 
by Matsumoto Eiko, and you look at um, her expose of the impact of pollution in a number of regions. So listeners particularly interested in that aspect of the history of the Ashio mine incident and the history of pollution um, might find this a material of special interest at the end of chapter one. So as we move to chapter two, we move to a one of um, several pieces of what winds up collectively being a really wonderful entry into the work of Tanaka or uh, right of Shozo. Right? Tanaka Shozo. Tanaka yes, Shozo, yeah. right. And so you mentioned him briefly before. He is Japan's famous, quote, first conservationist. Um, and he his work is really fascinating in this context. So <coughs> chapter two looks at um, an incident in which he delivered an appeal to the emperor, or a jikiso, in 1901. And the chapter takes us through a close reading of this document to not only help us understand um, the place of Tanaka in the larger context of your argument, but also sort of how we can read him in the context of this idea of uh, Meiji liberal society and the transformations that you're charting in the book. So let's maybe um, start on or start in on this chapter by talking about this document. Um, for you, yes. what are some of the, can you introduce this document for listeners? And in particular, what are some of the most important aspects of this document um, that help reveal these larger implications that you're charting in this chapter? Sure. This yeah, this gets complicated, but uh, the, the jikiso is literally uh, translated. It's a direct appeal, and it's left from the Tokugawa era, where um, there was a strict chain of command on where you were allowed to complain and where you were allowed to appeal. And it's almost always your immediate su superior. So for the peasant, it's going to be the, the village headman, and for the village headman, it's going to be some sort of representative of the, the, the lord of that realm. And then that goes all the way up through multiple intermediaries, through the, through the Tokugawa shogunate bureaucracy, and the ultimate authority at that point would be the, uh, the shogun himself. So the famous Tokugawa-era jikiso, are the most spectacular ones where someone skips all the way from peasant to uh, shogun, which is illegal on so many levels that the, the, the only punishment allowed for this is death by execu or execution. Um, and anyone who has helped the person um, is banished. And this is true even when the shogun agrees with the complaint and perhaps chastises the lord um, and acquiesces to the peasant's complaints. And we'll get into maybe exactly why that is the case at the very end. So this jikiso that Tanaka did in 1901 with help um, and calligraphy from the anarchist Kotok Shusui, this was an appeal to the emperor, not the shogun, but still to what is perceived as the highest locus of sovereignty and authority in the given society to end the misery of the Ashio pollution. Because by 1901, it has really become serious. And you mentioned at the end of Chapter 1, Matsumoto Eko's Sufferings of Mine-Poisoned Land, a serialized uh, ser a series of exposés in the, in, in the newspaper over the winter of 1901. And by the time she's done with that, the, the extent of the poverty and the complete breakdown of society in these poison in these regions, it's so much beyond 
just uh, reduce crop yields or sick children or anything like this. It's, it's become a major and the social issue of the, of the period and certainly of the area. And that was also marking a break at the end of Chapter 1 when this moved from a regional to an enormous national issue. Um, the Ashio case, in those, for many, due to Matsumoto and others reporting at the time, becomes one of the largest, um, what's called Shakai Mondai, or social problems of the Meiji period. And some people have said uh, that really the Ashio case, and specifically this Jikiso, is the one of two enormous events that shook the Meiji period. The other one is the um, Great Treason Incident of 1911, and Kotokshusu is involved in both. One as a, an appeal in the Jikiso, and then, of course, he's unjustly executed for a plot, supposed plot against the emperor in 1911. So this Jikiso event is enormous, and it's national, and it also is, as I mentioned, the point where very often it is seen as the ultimate expression of Japan's lost peasant past. It is a peasant form of remonstration. But what I try and do in the chapter is look at that and reconsider it and see what sort of things are being appealed to, why is it called a peasant, rather than just see that the Jikiso is a peasant protest, look at what's in it, look at what form it's taking, what images it's appealing to, and what it suggests as a remedy to the horrors of industrial pollution coming from the Ashio mine. And I think when I get through with that, it becomes not so much the last gasp peasant protest and a sign of what Japan uh, may have lost in its move to westernization, modernization. But I see it and explicitly write it as not an exhaustion of peasant society, but an exhaustion of liberal ideology that I had developed in Chapter 1. Um, and, th- and we didn't talk too much about it, but there's lots of examples of the idea that there's an autonomous individual and that it is, is, is walled off from the environment, and this is clearly not the case anymore. And the Jikiso is an attempt to hold on to as much of that autonomous liberal individual as possible, but still address a supra-individual, social, and really hard to pin down environmental problem. And so going through all of the issues and uncertainties and unknowns of environmental pollution, the Jikiso has to deal with all of that and try and somehow bring under control some sense of things that really aren't known. And ultimately, I argue uh, that it fails. But I had a little fun at the end by pointing out that a Jikiso itself isn't necessarily a progressive move or a revolutionary document. It is supposed to return the existing social relations to that, to the status quo ante, to prior to some sort of unjust tax or some sort of new problem or some sort of issue. But interestingly, um, I think a failed Jikiso does, in fact, include revolutionary and major um, turning points and potential inside of it. I'm taking this from um, a much broader theory, uh, partly from Marshall Solins and partly from some others. And I really like to think of historical change, but not always in this way. Sometimes it is explicit and intentional. But very often, I think you do get major moments of change. In this case, a major turning point, the environmental turn I talk about, 
from the failed reproduction of existing forms and the, the failure of the reproduction of daily life at leading to a moment of extreme anxiety for, for Tanaka and the rest. But from that extreme anxiety and from the exhaustion and the failure to reproduce the liberal subject and liberal ideology and parliamentary democracy, the turn to something, in this case, much more radical. And finally, in my view, something we can actually start now to call environmental politics. Now, I realize that's laid it out and I haven't actually worked out the details. One of the things that I look at, not just the term Jikiso and the form of it as a present protest, but also really interesting, this self-conscious identification that Tanaka has. He gives an interview a few days after the Jikiso um, in December 1901. And he said, and they asked him, what are you doing? And he answered, I'm trying to be the modern day Sakura Sogo, sometimes called Sakura Sogoro, which is a, who is a very likely a legendary peasant protest who did one of the most famous Jikiso, to the extent that it's actually a true story. Um, it's dated usually to 1651, when a peasant from nearby this area, in what would be Ibaraki now, oh no, excuse me, in Chiba now, um, was protesting higher taxes imposed by the new lord. And he did this by traveling to Edo and totally illegally hiding under a bridge in Ueno Park and supposedly having a there's multiple versions of this, and many of them are coming from the Kabuki Theater, so it's hard to say exactly, if at all. Uh, jumped out and threw a petition on behalf of his peasants uh, in the shogun's face, essentially. Um, he then is later executed. He and his wife are executed. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the shogun does fix the taxes and actually punishes the lord who had imposed them by taking him out of one his domain there and giving him lesser lands somewhere else. This is the famous uh, Sakura Sogoro story. And Tanaka comes out and says, this is, what I've been, this is what I was doing. This is the way to solve this pollution crisis. And so there's two really good arguments already for saying that this is, in fact, the last peasant protest, the last moment of, uh, uh, of the Tokugawa period in dealing with environmental pollution. Except that as I started reading on, and that's actually how I started this project. This was, this would have been chapter one of the dissertation. Hmm. And I thought I had a peasant protest story until so I started reading up on other invocations of Sakura Sogo. And I had tremendous help with this at, at Waseda. I, that was one of the help. The, the good moves I made was to study under a popular rights and liberty scholar, um, or two at, um, Waseda University. So I started, I came in thinking, okay, this is Sakura Sogoro. I'm going to start looking into this. And then you find out that in the Meiji period, Sakura Sogoro is everywhere. And people have been, and liberals have been invoking him as a model of modern Japanese liberalism for decades. Mm -hmm. um, Tanaka Shozo was one of the last people, not one of the first, but one of the last people to pretend he was, uh, or say he was uh, Sakura Sogoro. And once that started happening, I had to go in to find out, okay, when Sakura Sogoro is invoked in Meiji liberal ideology, where is that coming from? And it was a really interesting moment of trying to be a way to get what they saw, what liberals saw as 
less enthusiastic uh, former Tokugawa commoners aren't actually participating in politics quite enough. And so Sakura Sogoro was the model of uh, citizen part activism during this time. And as I went further and further into this, at looking at the Jikiso form, looking at Sakura Sogoro's inv invocation, reading Tanaka Shozo's biography, it w became clear that I was talking about something else. This was going to be liberalism in, in and of itself, not uh, a peasant issue. And then it gets to the end of the chapter where I do uh, an extended <coughs> close reading of the Jikiso text, um, which I translated and put in, in the back of the book. It, translated is... is kind to me uh that was <laughs> that text it's only a couple pages long and it is filled with such esoteric language some of it only used when referring to the emperor i i think decoded or it is is much closer to it um, than that and i did that with with tutors and the like and by the time you break that down it turns out that there's multiple logics um and multiple ambiguities of politics and subjectivity and proposed solutions that are in the text itself. It's a contradictory text, and as a result, it fails, and as a result of the failure, it led to something really interesting and important, which was this environmental politics. There's a lot longer version of that. I'm sure it's hard to believe, but there is. <laughs> um, and I spend several pages in the text working at how did petitions work in the Meiji period. The gist and the result of that is that, I, as I stated in the beginning, that the ambiguities and the uncertainties and all the unknowns that erupt with industrial-scale pollution and are described in other places is reflected in the ambiguities and the unknowns of the politics in the text. So this is working off, um, I think it's uh, Hanks's intertext, seeing... So how you can have this, the, the issues of the, in this case, uncertainties of the context show up in the text mm -hmm. and are reflected in it and ultimately um, lead to the, the inability of this Jikiso to be the dramatic solution that Tanaka and many of the others behind him hoped it would be. The emperor doesn't come out like the shogun and just close the Ashio mine. And there's lots of reasons for this. Part of the fact is that the emperor is himself ambiguous and contradictory in this period. He's both the symbol of a continuity of the, the Japanese past and a symbol of modernization. And all of those things, I like to think, the entire mess of Meiji politics, the glorious mess of Meiji politics that this, you can tease out from those two pages of this failed document. And that's how I saw that chapter and tried to pull that off. Great. Thank you so much. Um, and that's a really nice segue also into the next chapter, which also looks at Tanaka, but looks um, at his, what you call his environmental turn. Now there's so much going on in this chapter that we'll only really begin to uh, scratch the surface, but let's scratch a little bit because it's worth scratching. So from 1902 on, Tanaka undertakes these river pilgrimages to try to understand the interactions between humans and nature. And on these pilgrimages, he develops a theory. And this is a theory um, of, as you 
uh, put it in this chapter, real powers of the land and water. Now, these powers can't be transcended by people. They can only be managed. And he describes this in a kind of ecological philosophy that's based on two concepts that you talk about at length in this chapter, the concept of flow and the concept of poison. So can you maybe um, lead us into this chapter uh, or just kind of um, give us the highlights here by talking about these notions, flow and poison. And what's going on here? How is this central to the kind of work that Tanaka is doing? And you also um, invoke uh, the notion of actor network theory and Latour's work to try to understand what's happening with flows here. So flows, poison, Tanaka's thought, what's up with that? Can you lead us in? Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, that started again. Just I, I, I mentioned um, I didn't know what I was going to find. I just started reading Tanaka as much as I could, and I had already zeroed in on some on the liberalism, placed him as a frustrated liberal rather than a peasant. This this real powers of the land and water come from um, now we're in 1902 after he has this huge epiphany after almost a mental breakdown when the Jikiso doesn't work. He says something, I, I should know this, but he says something like, he, at first he wants to appeal, which I found really interesting, since the emperor didn't do it, he wants to appeal to the foreign embassies in Japan to, to stop the mine and to fix it. He doesn't do that. He says something I claim is more radical, which is saying, there's nothing left to do, I've, I, or I've finally awakened to the folly of appealing to this government. There's nothing left to do but to appeal to heaven itself. And the heaven here is the ten and of tenchi, and it's very close to just nature. Um, and so then I start reading what he's writing in 1902, immediately after this. And he has a long petition against uh, Meiji state policy to solve the, cri solve the environmental policy on their own, a uh, crisis on their own. And what their plan was, was to... It's the beginnings of the now famous holy lined cement bottomed Japanese river system, and you walk through Tokyo, and there's like it, it's like the L.A. River in the it, it, which is just a huge cement bank thing, and sometimes there's a trickle down the middle. <laughs> Lots of those are it, 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 the case in Japan too, and it's almost wholly cement lined. This is the beginnings of that. There's a plan, and a and it's called a pollution prevention committee of 1902 which is going to re-engineer the entire Kanto or Tone and Watarase watersheds, um, not to solve the pollution and not to close the mine, just to quickly get it to the ocean as fast as possible and, and solve the irrigation that, that had been happening. Tanaka um, and many of the other organizers are really good at organizing um, uh, this, uh, continuing the fight after the failed Jikiso and they start organizing and doing their own scientific analyses. They start doing their own soil chemistry experiments. They start, I mean, they've been doing this for a while, but they read, they double down on it. And one of the documents that comes out of this is a really long petition um, in which Tanaka lays out all of the things that they've, they've found about the hydrology and, and the pollution and the interactions and the nature society metabolism. And one of the phrases that kept recurring in that was this real powers of the land and water. And as I'm reading it over and over, the real powers of the land and water in this document come to serve as the limits of what humans should, this human interference and human ability to remake nature like the state is trying to do in this case. And ultimately, then, 
he starts to argue in this, I, I mean, it's a, probably about a 60-page petition. He starts to argue by saying that the plan that the Meiji state has to f- completely take control of the rivers and to make sure that they will never, ever flood again by building high dams, high levees, sluices, and the like, is centered on this one plan to um, have a reservoir that can always take overflow. And so anytime there's extra water, they will be able to fill this reservoir and, in theory, and as they state, completely control the ins and out, the input and the output coming out of this reservoir, and therefore, in their minds, solving the problem. Because now they see floods, not mining, as the problem. Um, and Tanaka starts talking about the real powers of the land and water. You quickly understand that he is arguing, saying that this policy can never work because motion is inherent in nature. It's always in motion. And this is partly an older Tokugawa agronomy idea, and it's partly some of the other thinkings of the philosophy of ki or chi that he has inherited. It's partly some Neo-Confucian understandings of nature. But starting from that policy of nature's always in motion and you can't stop it and any attempt to stop it is going to have unintended consequences. He eventually develops what you've asked about, which is the policy of flow and poison. And he called it's nagare and doku, uh, or literal, uh, so literal translations are flow and poison. But they're both possible motions, possible ways that the, that nature can move or act. Um, and so what he said is that you, can, you have to make a choice between are you going to foster a healthy flow or nagare or are you going to try and thwart that and you won't be successful because motion is not imposed on nature, it's inherent in nature. And so if you try and thwart that, what you will do is you will make nature move in ways that are antithetical to your aims and, and ultimately <laughs> antithetical to human health and human freedom. And that's the doku. So it's really, I mentioned, it, it sounds like it's, a, it's just a discrete unit, but it's really a cycle. And you have a nagare cycle, which will supposedly foster life and freedom. Or you can have a, or if you act incorrectly, you'll have a doku cycle, which will actually will do everything the opposite. It will ultimately turn into the site of stillness, and for him, that's death. The key term, and really the 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 line in this petition that I came across and that helped me rewrite uh, some of the other chapters. And it was this, this was the line I was looking for. Um, when I said, I just started reading and would hope I'd find some take on this that hadn't been done before is when he says, if we continue along these current lines, this Meiji kind of arrogant, hard engineering and remaking of nature, he says, um, we will eventually create a second toxic nature. And he said, and once that happens, it's all over. He said, I, I translated it as, there'll be no saving anybody anymore. Because what will have happened is, Nagare's process and, and the ability of nature to sustain human life and freedom and even happiness will have been completely turned over through human, in, human interference into a doku cycle or a total, uh, a, a new kind of this second nature, which he calls a second toxic nature and they think he says something like uh, uh, that wholly penetrates the soil and the rocks 
and this is the end. I mean, what I, and I say in this chapter, he has discovered or anticipated at least without using the term, uh, some of the current words that we use today, like ecocide or even omnicide, um, where the natural environment will be so transformed, it can't sustain life anymore. And this is what he sees himself as fighting. Um, there's another act story of, about this in that even to make it even worse than omnicide, I guess, is that the site of this reservoir for all of its misguided ecological and engineering imperatives and goals, there's a village there that needs to be destroyed and all of the people relocated in order to create this, this reservoir that Tanaka's saying won't even work. And this became for him, this village is named Yanaka. And this village thus becomes the site where the, it's, it's not explicitly sort of a Frankfurt school understanding of the subjugation of nature in, in turn leads to the subjugation of people. But nonetheless, that's, it's not theorized exactly that way, but it does happen right there. And Tanaka says that that's what's happening in that the exact same site where the state attempts to completely control nature is also the site where it has to be the most oppressive with its people. And so the Yanaka comes to serve as a, a point of contact between social and ecological oppression. And this becomes the fight of his life. Um, he retreats to Yanaka in 1904, and he stays there living with them through the state's attempts and a final success in destroying that, that uh, village. Uh, and he dies there in 1913. Uh, the people there, as I mentioned in the, in the chapter talk, they, they, say, they stay under unimaginable oppression and flooding and poverty and sickness, but they just will not move, even though all of their houses have actually been destroyed by the state and the police. They pick up the pieces and live in, the, in lean-to's version. And when they can't do that, as one guy did, he just lived in the, on the levees in a broken boat. Um, and this is, goes on for years. Tanaka saw this as the new form of protest, specifically by living in a different relationship to nature, and in this case, oppositionally to the state and to hard engineering sciences. Uh, um, so it's that Yanaka, and he has some really great language about, and he's really theorized this Yanaka as a socio-ecological uh, site of oppression, and therefore also the possible point of liberation, if we could actually start to act more like the Yanaka resistors and not acquiesce to the complete control that is attempted by uh, the Meiji state and the police and the rest of it. And you give us some of these amazing lines from his writing in this chapter. I think at one point he says in his diary, I am an unleasher of flows. And that's just, I mean, wow. That's one of many kind of wow moments of this. You just want to meet this guy and hang out yeah. with this guy. Um, another guy you just want to meet and hang out with, although hopefully it will be with clothes on, and I'll explain what I mean by that <laughs> in a moment. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, is in the next chapter. <coughs> So there's all kinds of other really fabulous stuff happening just in the discussion of Tanaka's work in chapter three that we could really talk about um, for the rest of the time easily. But let's just spend a little bit of time just um, briefly introducing what's happening um, in chapter four and chapter five. So the last two chapters focus on the work of two more thinkers, also both of them people who are just fascinating individuals to get to know through this book, who took up the issue of the relationship between nature, the individual, and society after Tanaka died 
died in 1913. The first one is treated in chapter four, and this is anarchist Ishikawa Sanshiro. Um, now you talk in this chapter about his anarchism and the impact of evolutionary theories on it. You talk about his development of the idea of a rhizome before the work of Deleuze and Guattari. So people who are particularly interested in cultural theory um, will find a lot of interest here. You talk also about his ideas of the materiality of the body and its material exchanges of the environment. And you talk about a conference that he sponsored right. um, at which um, all of the representatives met at a hot springs in the nude. And if, can you imagine AAS? I mean, if we did, it would make the whole conference, um, it would just take it to another level, I think. Yeah, if he were head, he would have <laughs> Let's all just meet in the nude. And so there is, you know, a reason for that and everything, but I digress. So for listeners, if you want to read about this naked conference, um, check out chapter four. But in order to, you know, to have a little bit of an idea of what was going on here, we don't have that much time, but you do mention the importance here of his thought and his thinking in terms of aesthetics. And you specifically yep. talk about the idea of dynamic social aesthetics as being key to understand what he's doing. So can you maybe just talk a little bit about that as a way of opening up just a tiny little window into what's um, happening in this chapter? Yeah, this was a tough one to research, and, and there's a lot left out. Um, but you're right, that question of aesthetics. I've been talking about materiality and doku and, and coming down from an idealist liberal position and metaphysics. Um, to aesthetics. And uh, that needed explaining. And what he ultimately is working with, and there's tons happening in his thought, um, he's continuing Tanaka's ideas. <coughs> um, but what I find really interesting about him is that and why I wanted to, why it was necessary to go this way is that most Tanaka and other scholarship ends with Tanaka and then it picks up again post-war. And Ishikawa is interesting because he at first just said, we need to get back to the land, get back to um, get away from all of this um, overbuilt environment, the cities and the like. So that was interesting enough in that he was a rural anarchist. And then secondly, and what interested me, because I told you I started with agrarian fundamentalism in the 40s, was that he survived to see the fascist inflection of this praise of the rural environment. And he struggled at really creatively and not always successfully, but mostly successfully against making, I guess the, the, the cheeky way of saying it would be, he was trying to make the, the village safe for the left when it gets completely co-opted by imperial metaphysics and, and the agrarian fundamentalists. Um, nonetheless, he chose aesthetics as the way to do this. And ultimately, that comes from his mistrust, um, and I'll, more than denial, uh, his mistrust of all these progressive ideologies that he sees as open-ended development, open-ended linear development that lead to overproduction, overbuilt environments uh, that he saw as ultimately crashing down. For his examples were Ashio and Yanaka um, during the Russo-Japanese War in Japan, and he was also in exile in Europe during World War I, he had fled um, during the roundup of, or, of leftists after the Great Treason Incident of 1911. So he was, saw also the extreme deprivations of World War I. And so he saw these as the result of 
open-ended, uh, I mean, overbuilt environments that were no longer tenable. He called them Towers of Babel that are constantly crashing down in front of us. And he traced that back to a blind belief in, in uh, progressivism. And he started to look at all of the ideologies in which he saw progressivism. Darwinism was one. Largely, he's really not so much Darwinism. It's, it's a lot more Spencer um, that he's getting it from. But nonetheless, Darwinism was one. Socialism was another. Communism was another. Capitalism was another. And for him, only anarchism, grounded in rural life and a connection to the land, was or avoided this open-ended theology of endless accumulation. And he did that by looking to Paul Reclus, Elysee Reclus, who and he lived with Paul, um, and he knew Elysee's work quite well and actually translated um, the, the Earth and Its Peoples into Japanese. And what he found there, and this isn't totally actually Reclus, but when he was done with Reclus, um, he made Reclus into someone more like Ishikawa than Reclus himself, in that he took all of the progressivism out and rounded it spatially into the, the land, the, the earth, and a finite material environment. Specifically, hopefully, everyone would have some chance to have contact with the earth through farming. Um, and this is how he eventually did it. Why he calls this aesthetics is because once he had rejected Darwinism, he looked for non-Darwinian forms of evolution. And he looked for non-Darwinian theories of variation. And overwhelmingly, these were neo-Lamarckian, and his influences here were like or Edward Carpenter, especially in um, in England. And to to explain how he gets to aesthetics from there, he was looking for this neo-Lamarckian moment of where the env outside environment and the inside individual. Um, what was the point of contact? And for him, it was the nervous system. And for at the nervous system, you could have in the Lamarckian sense of not being just buffeted by natural selection from without, you could have an idea, a conception, or even before that, a desire. And that would drive you to create out in the world. And he was going to say that this ultimately is a way to um, re-theorize uh, human interaction with the environment. And because he did it that way, he was able to say, all this overdevelopment that I'm seeing everywhere is the result of a choice, and so it can be unchosen. And this is his retreat to the land. Now, I didn't get to the, the, the fascist inflection of this, <laughs> but um, they said back to the land, but they did it ultimately at the, uh, at the level of imperial metaphysics. And when Ishikawa read that, he realized immediately that he was way too close to them um, in, in his theory. And so he, he started to really make that point of aesthetics and the idea of the beauty and the good, um, a result of ultimately healthy material interactions uh, with the environment. That, so if you were healthy and people had freedom, that was redefined as the beauty and the good. And in the sense that it, when you saw beauty, what you were really seeing was health and freedom and self-determination. Um, and when you saw the ugly, as he started to call the agrarian fundamentalists, you saw hierarchies, oppressive natures, um, and, and um, in, in this um, other forms of harmful absolutisms that were echoing Tanaka's language, the absence of free movement and the absence of healthy uh, self-expansion <laughs> in the favor of constriction. And the ultimate constriction for him was 
uh, the ethnic nation state in the wartime period where there was no freedom and it was extremely oppressive and everyone had these roles to play and everyone had to sacrifice for the war effort. That was what he saw as the telos of that form of back to the land. And he did a lot of really interesting work to say that there's another way to be in contact with the land and not fall that way. The, the last bit you talked about that, that conference was, uh, <laughs> is a visionary text, a utopian text they wrote in 1946 and it's called Japan 50 years later. And it's the idea that, in 1996, when it's set, he's 120 years old, and he's hard of hearing, but otherwise he's fine, and people come to visit him, and like News from Nowhere or William Morris's, it's one of these rare utopian texts where he actually lays out in pretty believable and plausible ways how the world came to be a generalized cooperative society that replaced imperialism, war, and capitalism um, that had just ended in 1945. And there's lots of ways this happened. And there's also a resonance of a really understudied and much not well-known enough uh, moment in Japanese history in the immediate aftermath of the war when workers just took control of the factories. There was a capital strike. And unlike uh, current ideas about what happens if capitalists would go on strike that we have here in the U.S. now, uh, everything worked out more or less. Um, everybody kept working, kept providing, and food kept flowing, and even fertilizer kept going um, for the years 46 and 47. And then we, with the famous reverse course and the change of policy and Cold War policy in Asia, that was put, there was a stop put to that. But that's precisely at this really interesting moment when Ishikawa is imagining what post-war society is going to look like. And he sees it, and he had reason to see it as a cooperative, a federated world cooperative um, that would replace empire. And ultimately, yes, he wanted this to conference every year. They would come together and meet in the hot springs in the nude. One, to be as close to dealing with nature as possible, totally undoing their clothing from the first chapter, which was designed to keep you away from the environment because the environment's scary and dangerous. And, and now it was like Tanaka, you need to be open to it. And secondly, following Reclus and Carpenter and his own thoughts on nudism, uh, it removed all of the signs of uh, rich, poor class and cultural distinctions, getting you down to the actual human essence. And then you would plan the global economy for the next year at those hot springs. That's the plan. <laughs> well, AAS, you know, yes, we can yeah, still exactly. make this happen. Uh, so, Robert, we don't have that much time. So I want to just kind of... Okay briefly mention um, what's happening in chapter five, um, and then just kind of let you chime in. If there's anything in particular about that chapter that you're especially excited about, we can talk about that. So chapter five looks at another, the work of another figure. This is Kurosawa Torizo, who founded Snowbrand Dairy. Now you talk about Snowbrand Dairy as the quote, original green company. It was founded explicitly to heal the various kinds of degradations of the Ashio mining incident. And you talk about the ways that this dairy kind of is imbricated in discussions of and understandings of a path toward a kind of ecology of self-sufficient production. And you look at the ways that um, both wartime and then post-war co-option of and, and um, engagement with this dairy are involved in, um, at least in the post-war context, what you call an effort to rebuild the nation according to a new cooperative national capitalism. So this is all about the dairy. It's all about dairy farming, and it really pushes 
use this story in a really interesting direction. Is there any, um, briefly, is there any particular element of this chapter that you are really excited about that you'd like to um, kind of summarize or share with us? Sure. Um, yeah, to stand, in many ways, this is the culmination. It's one of the last people who worked with Tanaka and were in the Ashio uh, m- movement who followed this through. He lives well into the post-war period. Um, and Snowbrand is today still well known. And it, until recently, when it emerged, it was a, it's the biggest dairy producer, was the biggest dairy producer, certainly the most famous in Japan. Um, so this is a, lo- a very well-known, enormous uh, company. And that's interesting. But in the interest of time, the issue here is finally, not just that this is the, one of the last disciples of Tanaka, but when you extend this through the war like he did and through the post-war period and follow all of the vagaries of how Snowbrand sees itself and how it's trying to found a company that is economic or environmentally sound um, and failing to do that here and there. And the idea and one of the combinations of the book is I say that now what we've got in the troubles that Snowbrand is having to do this as a company, and specifically a, a, a joint stock company, we get an insight into one of the problems that I think is driving this entire process from the discovery of the new problems of environmental history and the, uh, of environmental pollution in the first chapters to now, which is specifically capitalism and what is called um, the real subsumption of nature under capital. Mm-hmm. Um, in, which is developed in Marx's Capital, where he talks mostly about, and this is the conclusion to the, the epilogue to the book as well, where it's explicitly laid out, um, where he explicitly argues um, in Capital, Marx talks about the real subsumption of labor under capital. And what that means is there's two ways for capital to take control and harness and maybe redirect labor. One is it takes existing forms of labor and just sucks off the surplus, but leaves those existing forms intact. So it, you could keep peasant agriculture going, but the surplus doesn't go to the Lord anymore. Maybe it goes to the, 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 the firm that owns the leases on the place. But the actual practice of the farming might not change. That's different in the factory, where you reorder labor itself, break down assembly lines, and, and the, the forms of the artisanal labor are totally missing, um, and they're reorganized. I'm arguing in this book... Um, and it emerges in the Snowbrand chapter as we follow it through war and post-war, that nature's undergoing the same thing. That re-engineering of the river plains in 1902 was a perfect example of finding out that all of the problems that they couldn't solve in chapters 1 and 2 um, aren't solvable. So, because nature's too messy, there's too many hybrid causalities, there's too many agents and I mentioned uh, the causality argument of Deleuze and Guattari. It's not just cause and, re- and effect. It's and, 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 and. It's just a myriad, and it disappears into nothing. The, one of the solutions, I don't recommend it, but one of the solutions to this is to rebuild nature that does act as in straight one-to-one cause and effect. And this is one of the, asp- one of the logics of capital and capital accumulation. And looking at Snowbrand in chapter five to see that working out, I finally say, and I did, yes, I stole it from Godfather three at the end (laughs) where it says uh, our true enemy has finally revealed itself. 
and it's the real subsumption of nature under capital and how capital has hit limits as to how far it can go. Um, nitrogen depletion, it, it, it can't expand agriculture as much as it needs to, and it goes through multiple ways. Uh, it goes through guano imperialism, the raiding of the catacombs for bones, raiding, and, and this is a global problem of the late 19th century, and Snowbrand's attempt to solve it is not those, but a specific kind of dairy farming is supposed to solve the nitrogen deficit, and that runs into limits, and ultimately is abandoned in favor of totally rebuilding nature from the ground up as much as possible in a way that will prefigure its easy capture as economic accumulation. The, the last thing I'll say is that the one paragraph where this happens, I think most dramatically in the chapter five, and in some ways is a culmination and exam, perfect example of this real subsumption is when the needs of certain kind of protein glue based on dairy for world for 1930s and early 40s aircraft production and the needs of the total war state by Japan actually redid the ecology and the digestion of the dairy cows, partly uh, administered by Snowbrand, by filling them fuller and fuller of fattier and fattier foods to get fattier milk that could then be separated into these airplane glues. And so you get, as I said in some form, uh, the, the wartime state actually reaching all the way back and rebuilding the cow in a way conducive to uh, imperialism in East Asia. And this becomes the nexus of uh, and something that Tanaka had warned against in 1905, saying that the culmination of social and ecological oppression are related and they will get worse and worse. And this is about it. Hopefully this is worse as it can get. It's not nuclear war is, but um, there's a way to get to this. Uh, that's briefly and not so briefly chapter five. Perfect. Well, Robert, thank you so much. And you've also given us a sense of the conclusion um, yes. and, and the kind of work that's done there. And so I'll just reiterate that briefly and just mention that those sure. um, listeners who, oh, just to say those listeners who are particularly interested in the contributions of the book to a way of thinking um, Marxian theory and the ideas of capital will find a lot of really fascinating theoretical material in the conclusion as well. And that's where I tried to say what might Marxian theory and STS or ANT or actor network theory, uh, there's points of contact there and divergence. And that was where I explicitly tried to think that through. Exactly. So Robert, there's a, thank you so much. There's a whole, whole lot of the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. That's sure. really fascinating um, just because of limitations of time. But is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about that you'd like to mention for readers? Uh, sure. I mean, I, it's it's easy to lose where we started from that, that that this was a liberal model of subjectivity, and and a certain model of the subject leads to a certain form of politics. And I think that unfortunately, the preferred form of liberal politics and de democratic politics built on that liberal subject that was built there and and globally, and we're still in, uh, has uh, because it imagines. It, is so autonomous from the natural world has a built-in probably unsolvable blind spot when it comes to environmental pollution and it's not a coincidence that if Tanaka and Koto Kushusui and the Jikiso ran into problems when they tried to push that liberal subjectivity to address something like this I think I'd say something like if in fact that's true that environmental pollution and, and autonomous property and autonomous bodies 
uh, is a fundamental blind spot for liberalism, then the answer to the environmental pollution problem can't just be more liberalism or more debate. This is where I started with the Shimotsuke Liberal League versus Blue Vitriol. They were so confident that just merely getting together and talking would solve this problem. And it doesn't. It's going to require much more radical and complicated theories of the politics of the, of the political subject based on the permeable body. And um, I speculate a little bit on where, what direction that might take, which is, you'll notice, very different from suggesting an answer. But so, yes, that's the overall arc. Great. So, Robert, now that the book is out, um, are there any projects that are currently inspiring you, or what are you working on now? Uh, I mentioned this a little bit in um, the epilogue. Uh, I'm working on um, uh, Minamata, or methylmercury poisoning. Uh, again, this has been written about quite a bit. Um, my take on it is going to be this group called of scholars, doctors, activists, literatures, uh, I mean, writers, um, that got together and started calling what they were doing something a discipline, not just uh, calling it Minamatagaku, which, of course, immediately perked, I perked up to because Tanaka had called what he did in that village Yanakagaku mm-hmm. and said that that was the key to modernity. And there's a group that is working on, I'm trying to f- speculate on what this might mean to consider this as the of the Gaku or the theology or Minamata studies. There was actually a plan in the 80s to make this a university um, that taught one subject, Minamata Gaku, because the environment in this case, um, like Tanaka and like some of the other people I've examined in this book, seemed to be the subject that actually tied all of the, the past and the present and the flows and nature and economy. This kind of understanding ecology that way seemed to be um, one of the major ideas rather than just political economy, like the subject to study. And in their opinion, and I think mine too, the most urgent study as subject to study um, because the solutions will be needed to this. Um, I mean, I was finishing this as Fukushima was happening as well. And um, Tanaka started showing up briefly again in the news and popular culture. And I haven't gone into those yet, but right now working on uh, Minamata Gaku. Well, thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. The book Thanks. is fantastic. And, uh, and thank you. And best of luck with your current work. Okay. Thank you very much. This is great. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.